Welcome to RVR's Life After Camp podcast. Learn about the camp and retreat ministries of RVR at rivervalleyranch.com. Enjoy. Where's everybody? All right, one more time. We got this, right? Oh, Lord. Uh, excuse me, Justin. We yes. can't quite get into this just yet. There's something that we actually need to take care of. What's that? Something that happens only once in a while. Here at RVR, under special circumstances, we have a little thing that we like to call the Hall of Bravery. I feel like there's a dunk tank. This award is not given out to those with meek hearts and weak constitutions. This award is only given out to those who have gone above and beyond in the call of duty. Weeks ago, you were looking at your future as a man who was ready to come here and change lives. You did not know that for six months and a bunch of surgery, your life was gonna change. You went to the ninja barn, gazing upon a 13-foot wood wall in all its glory, ready to conquest. But you didn't know that the warp wall would become your Achilles heel. You were here, ready and willing. But when you suffered damage, you didn't stop, did you? No! You got your crutches. You got your paper pants at first, because that's what they give you when you're at urgent care. And you came back and said, I will continue to preach. I will continue to give this message. I will bring the word of the Lord to these students. Now, I would originally ask you to get down on one knee, but we know that's not gonna happen. So, by the power invested in me, by me, I induct you into the hall of bravery. Rise to your feet, students. Rise, rise. We salute you in all that you do. Cut the music, cut the music, cut the music, cut the music. Cut the music, we're not, now. Yes, normally, we would just end it there, but we have one other special thing that we're going to give you. Because we have a very special uh, custom trophy that we'd like to hand out called the Golden Crutch. Oh, seriously? All of Bravery, 02-16-20. Oh. Enjoy it. Look at this. 100% gold colored. I dedicate this. Thank you, Justin. I dedicate this to the greatest of all Greek warriors, Achilles himself who was brought down with an arrow to the heel. That's it. That's my whole speech. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so we are going to make it through this, and then I'm going to go ice my aching foot and uh, going to go home and figure out how to do life with no driving for a little while. And uh, the update is we follow up with the, a great orthopedic surgeon uh, on Monday. That's good. And um, I just, I think I just bought one of those little scooter pusher things this kid had. I think I just bought one on the yard sale site. So that'll be nice, right? 
Well, yeah, we'll get there, you know. And, you know, listen, here's the thing. You live, you learn, you get old, and some, someday you, uh, you recognize that. And this is apparently my day to recognize that. So, um, yeah. Hey, we had a great time this weekend. Thank you so much for your patience with me hopping up and down on the, on the crutches. And um, listen, we inhabited this beautiful tension, right, in that story of Hosea. And I think it's really important that you learn to do that. I think sometimes we want this cathartic release in spirituality where we don't stay long enough in the tension of who we have been and who we are becoming. And sometimes we just want this sort of like quick release. And so we want this kind of emotional experience to sort of get us out of the tension. But it is the tension itself that leads to transformation. That's how the Holy Spirit works. That's part of the way he speaks to you and pulls you along, and you've got to find the courage to stay in those moments where it's like, hey, this, this kind of feels tough right now. You've got to, you've got to learn to like, just settle down into that and let God reveal his character and his nature to you. And um, Hosea is one of these really difficult stories because I told you at the beginning he's a prophet in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is doomed. I mean, what happens after, I wish there was this storybook ending, where it's like, okay, they heard these warnings about you know, the impending doom. What, what happens to the northern kingdom of Israel is their unfaithfulness reaches a point where they end up in Assyrian captivity. I don't even think you can call it captivity. Like for the southern kingdom, when they go into exile in Babylon, there's sort of hope of restoration. For the northern tribes, those 10 tribes, they essentially cease to exist. I mean, the Assyrians, like, wipe them off the earth. It's really, really awful. Um, and it's really difficult. And so, you know, when, when you read about hope, from, from, you know, when you're standing in the shoes of Hosea, reading about hope, we think the audience of the book of Hosea is probably the southern tribe. Like, that, that Hosea delivered the, his, his prophecies to the northern tribe, but that this later document was written for the southern tribes to sort of say, like, hey, don't do that. Like, don't go that way. And so where, you know, when, when you look at this, it just seems like it's incongruous. Like, how do you hope when there's doom on the horizon? And the truth is, in the scope of eternity, all of that hope looks forward to the person of Jesus. That it's hard for us to understand because there's, you know, 400 years in between these two events, but what happens with Jesus is everything changes when Jesus comes. Jesus brings the kingdom. He brings this revelation of God in this perfect and beautiful way. Like, if you want to know what God is like, look carefully at the person of Jesus. If you want to know what God wants from you, listen carefully to the message of Jesus. And what I want you to understand is in this one family moment as we wrap up here, I need you with me to understand just how remarkable it is that Jesus Christ changed the world when he began the movement that we call the kingdom of God. And he unleashed this force of light and hope and love into the story of fractured and corrupted humanity as this restoration and reconciliation force. And it's remarkable how he did this. 
I mean, the odds are so stacked against him because Jesus comes from within a Jewish religious framework that was honestly really not well equipped for this. They, they had this religious framework that was very legalistic and it amplified the distance between God and people. And they were always very insular and closed off. And Jesus is coming not just as the hope of Israel dispossessed and, and the hope of this remnant being restored, but the hope of all people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all humanity reimagined, restored, and put back into harmony with God and overflowing into this relational interdependence that we call community. You following me? This is a global vision. This is a, this is a complete utter transformation of the human story. It's a reimagined humanity. And that's exactly how the earliest followers of Jesus talk about this. This is a cosmic shift. Um, Listen to how Paul picks this up. I mean, everything changes. The early followers of Jesus, they, they, they got this, that somehow Jesus took the ashes of corrupted and fractured humanity and he forged a family. Um, he had these knuckleheads when he chose his disciples. And I mean, they were knuckleheads. I just want to like, for, for the sake of the record, um, Jesus did these things when he chose his disciples. He deliberately picked people on opposite sides of the social and political spectrum in ancient Palestine. I just want you to imagine this for a second. Okay, I want you to think of like the most rabid, you know, feeling the burn, Bernie supporter, right? And like the like red hat wearing, like, you know, uh, you know flag waving, um, make America great again person. And that Jesus comes to these two people who are so diametrically and fundamentally opposed to one another, and they can't even tolerate the existence of the other. And he says to these people, I, out of this polarity, am going to forge a family of unity, and you together are going to change the world. Just think about that. Think of what an order that would be. Think of how in echo chamber culture that we live in today, how, how, how unlikely that would be to accomplish this. How are they going to discover unity in diversity? How exactly will that be? And, and furthermore, what Jesus said is, the unity you will achieve in diversity, the love that you will discover one for another, that will be the great signpost for other people on the outside to recognize that you are walking in the Jesus way. That the Jesus way above all else will be known for how you love one another. Oh God, I wish that were true. How powerful would it be if you surveyed all the people, you know, the, the six and a half billion people on planet Earth, and you said, what do you know of the Jesus way? And they said, what I know is there is a group of people who are irrationally committed to the well-being of others. What I know is that there is this, there's this movement of selfless love. And I mean, it's ridiculous how, how well they love and care for one another that, that despite the fact that this is a multinational, multicultural, multigenerational reality, for 2,000 years, these Jesus people have been loving one another so well that they've transformed the very course of our culture globally. You with me? Sounds about right, doesn't it? I wish. I wish. What we're known for, let's be honest, is a bunch of things we're against. Where is that in his vision for the kingdom? It's just not there. We've done something wrong. We've, 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 this is the way we have wandered. We are a wayward bride now. There's got to be some course correcting. 
Listen to how Paul picks this up. This is in 2 Corinthians. So this is amazing. Paul here, now we talked last night about this covenant responsibility that the firstborn had to be an agent of reconciliation within the family, right? We talked last night about he was supposed to go chase his lost brother and bring him home. Listen to how Paul picks up this idea. Now, Paul is trained as a Pharisee. He knows well this idea of reconciliation. He's going to unpack this right of the firstborn for a Greek pagan culture in Corinth. They don't know this Jewish tradition. They have no idea. And so he's kind of unwinding this for them, saying, hey, listen, this is how this works where I'm from. This is what Jesus is doing when he's given you the ministry of reconciliation. When I mean you, I mean you corporately, the body of believers, the family of God. Okay, here we go. Therefore, says Paul, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. We're reimagining humanity. This is heaven coming to earth. We're shaping the future as only God has imagined it. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. He fixed it. He bridged the gap. He repaired the breach. He's the one that, that, that allowed this family who shouldn't, you know, he chased us down. He found us. He reconciled us to God. The only thing in between you and God today is the distance that you put there because he's taken all the real things and removed them. He reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, we use the word ministry in church land as like a church program. Like you got like a ladies ministry. You guys come from a church with a ladies ministry? They, they, what, what, what do they call it? Sisters in spirit? What do they, what do they? They're always some goofy name, right? And then like the men's ministry is always like forged. <laughs> like there's some diamond plate logo. You ever notice how in marketing, like men's shampoo, it's the same exact product, but there's like, there's all the packaging is devoid of color. Because men, men don't like purple. It's like shampoo for men. It's the same thing as it is for women, but this one comes in a black bottle. Yeah. Um, which is, I don't know why we haven't figured out how insulting that is yet, but we're just, I don't know, we're, we're, we're silly. Okay. He doesn't mean here like a program. What, what, what he means here is like, this is, a, this is a mission you will embody. This is a, this is something you will wrap the orientation of your life around. This is a goal you have set and you will live into the story of this. You're going to wake up every morning on mission for the cause of reconciliation. Come on, somebody. you got to pick this up. I'm laying it down. Here we go. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, that we're supposed to be like banners of this idea that peace has come, the war is over. There is no enmity between humanity and God. Whatever was there is now gone. It's, it's, we're, we're, it's done. Come home. He's not mad at you anymore. There's no, there's no problem. Come home, be reconciled, come back into the family. And we roll the welcome wagon out and we are the ones that make it as easy as possible for those turning to Christ. That was one of the values of the early church. They actually convened the very first council of all the church leaders to settle this issue of how can we make it less difficult for the people in the Greek and Gentile world that are coming to the Jesus way, how do we make it as easy as possible for them to get in? Think about that for a second. 
Have you designed your church, your youth ministry, to make it as easy as possible for outsiders to find their way in? Or do you guys all hang out together and it's like this cool club and you guys got all these things, there's all these barriers, all these weird things are happening, no one can explain it to anybody else and it feels awful. And you guys are a really holy clique, you guys are really great, you guys are best friends, it's your BFFs, and, but who cares about that person that just walked in? One of my mentors um, in, in a seminary was Marilyn Manson's youth pastor. Do you guys even know who he is anymore? So back in the day, Marilyn Manson was like the I don't know what you would even compare him to anymore. He was like the ultimate shock rocker, I guess. He, uh, you know, kind of some dark emo thing going on, this like weird vibe. And uh, it, he, he was a youth group kid. He was a youth group kid in, in Indianapolis. And um, he stayed for like four or five months in this youth ministry. And he couldn't find a friend. I just want you to reframe history. in light of a welcoming face for this dude. Someone that said, hey, come sit by me. <laughs> oh, we could change a lot of lives. Committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Come home. Be part of the family. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh. Now, here's what I want you to get because I think you understand the what. I think you know what we're after here. We're after this unity as the family of God. We're after this thing that transcends your personal uh, perspective, your individual story, your individual agenda. We're after this kind of transcendent reality that binds us together as one family under the banner of one Savior named Jesus, one King. But how do we get there? This is a really hard thing to think about. Is this like, well, just it means I'm, I, I learned to listen better or I, I temper my posts on social media with grace or, or maybe I just invite people over for barbecues more often. Probably all those things are good, but I'm not really sure. What, we, what has to happen here is we have to transform people's perspectives about the nature of power itself and about what it means to walk in the way of Jesus. And so we need to pull a page out of his playbook here. How did Jesus forge a family out of these apostles? Well, here's a really great Bible study for you to do on your own sometime. Go read, start with Mark. So Mark is the spiritual son of Peter. That's so Mark's gospel is really Peter's retelling of the Jesus story. And I want you to pull every reference that Mark's gospel makes to, to John, the brother of James, son of Zebedee. And what you're gonna find is, Peter kind of had a thing against John. He was kind of mean. All the memories he has of John are a little bit critical. Okay, like, like let, me, let me give you an example. Um, when, when they hear about the empty tomb, they, they both run to, to meet Jesus, you know, to, to, to see this, you know, resurrected Lord, the empty tomb. And um, one of them runs faster than the other. And it's noted for no reason in the text. Like, they both ran. Both of them loved Jesus, but one of them apparently loved Jesus more because he ran faster, okay? Then go read John's gospel and look for every reference to Peter. You know these stories we have about Peter, like, denying Jesus three times? 
it becomes clear when you look at that, the only reason we know that story is because John was there and he was watching it. And he told us all about it. Okay, there's a lot of, these guys are rivals. They're from two rival businesses in the Galilean countryside. They are like from the two main families in the Galilean fishing trade, and they were business rivals. And, and this whole thing, I mean, they're constantly vying for prominence. They're in, they're in competition all the time. Then you get to Acts chapter 3. After the resurrection, after Pentecost, after this Jesus movement is underway, after their lives have been turned upside down by the power of the Spirit and the truth of the cross, and they begin walking in this new thing, it's Peter and John working as a ministry team, a unified whole. Whatever enmity and competition they used to have is gone. Now they're speaking with one voice when they say to this crippled man, silver and gold I do not have, but what we do have, we give to you. Get up, take your mat, and walk. Guys, this is so powerful. How did Jesus do this? I mean, these disciples were at each other and being competitive with each other like bickering siblings up until the Last Supper. They're literally trying to figure out at the Last Supper. Jesus has just disclosed to them how he's going to suffer and die for, the, for all of humanity. They don't understand it. And he, Jesus just said, guys, listen, I'm going to tell you, like, it's going to go bad. The Son of Man's going to die. He's going to be pierced for the transgressions of many, and it's going to be awful. And I, I have to do He asked them to stay up and pray with him in the garden. I mean, all this crazy stuff has gone on, right? So, I mean, this is actually prior to the garden. He's still at the table with these guys, trying to tell them what he's going to suffer. And one of them says, hey, um... We're wondering, talking about the suffering you're going to do, that's great. Which of us is the coolest? We just want to know which of us is your favorite. We, have a, we, have, we suspect it's John, but Peter keeps saying it's Peter. Peter always thought he was the favorite, right? John in his gospel calls himself never by name. He calls himself the one that Jesus loved. Now, I don't know if that's his way of saying, I'm his favorite. Or if that's his way of saying, I don't even want a name. I just want to be known as the one Jesus loved. And they're bickering and they're fighting. All of them have done this. And Jesus does something in the midst of that. Um, we all know the story, right? He stands up from the table and he takes the bread and he takes the cup, right? And he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. We, we know this story. When John granddaddy of the Jesus movement, when John in his old age, the last living eyewitness to the Jesus way, when he writes his account of the Last Supper, everyone anticipates that in this moment, when Jesus rises from the table at the meal, he's going to grab bread and wine and institute the Eucharist, the, 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 the Thanksgiving meal, this common union where we come together at the table and find our unity, and he does something different. He tells a different story, and everybody would have went, What? In John's version, Jesus does something different. And it's a correction. It's a correction to the way that we understand power and unity and community. And if we're going to be one family, this is how we're going to get there. Follow me? Okay, here we go. John chapter 13. Here's Jesus at the table with these rivals and misfits and strong personalities. And he has the task of forging out of their diversity and division something beautiful, a new family. And here's how he does it. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or he loved them to completion. This is the word for like, um, he loved them perfectly. The evening meal was in progress. 
And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal and he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. Um, Guys, this would have been huge. This would have been so scandalous. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In uh, the laws of hospitality in ancient Palestine, this foot washing custom was um, incredibly uh, poignant. This is a gesture that is, is necessary because they're walking through dirt roads all the time. There are no closed-toed shoes in the day of Jesus. Even the Roman soldiers wore sandals. And so you're walking around all the time in the dirt with, with sandals on. And you would be disgusting. I mean, your feet would be vile at the end of the day. And over time, uh, this actually begins in ancient Greece, but it continued into the Roman world and in ancient Palestine where the Jews are at too. And this, this custom of, of ceremonial foot washing developed well in, in one part hygiene and one part social convention. And this is how this works. If you're coming to my house as an honored guest, I am responsible as a good host to, at the minimum, I provide water for you to wash your own feet. If I'm wealthy, I can provide a servant who will wash your feet. And as people come in, they sit down, and the servant comes and gets the, the base. And it's a little bit of like a luxury kind of a, a feel if a servant washes your feet when you come in. If you are my social equal, well, then I, uh, I at, at a very minimum, have to provide water for you to wash your own feet. If I'm the host, it's on me to, to make this arrangement. Um, if you, however, are an honored guest, like a highly honored guest, the epitome of honor would be as you came through my threshold, I would be there with my household, with my family, and I would wash your feet myself. And it was a way of saying, welcome, you are important to me. I, I highly value you. This is what's behind that scene when Jesus sits at the table of Simon the Pharisee, and Simon the Pharisee doesn't provide water for Jesus to wash his own feet. He doesn't offer to wash them. He doesn't even provide water either. So Jesus sits down at Simon's table with dirty feet. What's happening there is Simon is deliberately insulting Jesus. He's saying, you are of no value to me, and I will not wash your feet. I won't even provide water. And it's so scandalous that the whispers of this spread through this village. Remember I talked about shame culture last night, right? This, this peasant culture in ancient Palestine, it's... He's bringing shame to that whole town because of this insult. And this woman of questionable reputation, she hears about this and she says, nope, this is unacceptable. And she barges into his home and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and dries them with her hair to rectify this insult. You know this, right? Jesus said this story will be told all the time because we're doing it right now. This is the convention. So Jesus takes his disciples and he sends two of them away to, to make preparations to celebrate the Passover meal. He says, I want to eat with you one more time. It's a holiday dinner. Make preparations. They're in Jerusalem. They're displaced from their normal homes. Rent a room. Let's have a party. Those two disciples are supposed to go and make all the preparations. They're the hosts. Now, this is what happened, though. 
they get to where they're going and they have this weird moment of like power dynamics where neither of them wants to admit they're beneath the other. And so, you know, what they should be doing here is making arrangements for who's going to wash feet and where the water goes. But in stubborn pride, neither of them will relent. Neither of them will place themselves beneath the other because in their minds, they're racing for the top. They're jockeying for position. They all want to be the boss. They all want to be the chief, not the little Indian. I'm not beneath you. I won't serve you. And so there's this awkward moment between these two guys where they're like, yeah, okay, it's all done. How are we going to eat? Who's, who's bringing the food? Well, what about the foot washing? The other guy says, what about the foot washing? And the guy says, well, I'm, not, I'm not your slave. I'm not your slave. And they sit down with dirty feet. The next disciple gets there, and he comes in the door, and there's no wash basin, and these two guys don't make a move to get up and welcome him in and wash his feet. So he's like, I'm not your slave. And he sits down at the table with dirty feet. This scene repeats itself 12 times. All these guys come in, every single one of them more proud than the next, and they all sit down with dirty feet at the table. And then Jesus gets there. Now, this is what you need to understand. Jesus walks in. None of them budge. None of them get up. They're sitting there with dirty feet. This is gross. I mean, the way this worked, they're reclining together at the table, kind of sideways at this low-to-the-ground table. It's almost like they're eating off the floor, and their dirty feet are like right there in proximity to the bread bowl. This is gross, guys. I mean, this, this is insulting. And they've done a great dishonor to their rabbi, to their master. And Jesus says to himself, how am I going to leave the way of the kingdom, the way of selfless love in the hands of these proud knuckleheads who can't get up from the table and be a servant of anybody? You don't understand. They're arguing about who's the most powerful. And Jesus says, let me show you what power really looks like. And he rises and he takes off his rabbi's cloak, which is the symbol of his authority. He puts on a towel, which is the symbol of a servant, and he steps down to wash their feet. Now, this is the moment in the shame culture of the ancient Near East where these guys lose their minds. He, Jesus has them. I mean, this is an emotional moment. There are tears. There is regret. They're just astounded by what's happening, and they don't know how to make sense of this. This is going to change their lives. This moment is going to, it's going to, this is the kind of thing where it's like Gomer being welcomed back with this chesed, this covenant love. They've been insulting. They've been unfaithful. And now here comes the covenant love of their king to show them a better way. He's washing everybody's feet, drying them with the towel wrapped around him. And he comes to Simon Peter, who's probably the loudest and the most arrogant. And, and listen to what Simon says. Now, keep my, everything I just told you, right? This is regret that's coming out of his mouth. He knows he should have gotten up, and he didn't. He's normally the one who leads. He acts quickly, and he was not decisive here. He allowed pride to keep him in his chair, and he feels terrible about it. And he says, Lord... You gonna wash my feet? I don't like this. And Jesus said, You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Because he's not just washing their feet, he's gonna die for them. And in dramatic fashion, 
He is putting on display the very essence of the incarnation. When the king of heaven and earth left the majesty being enthroned on high to come walk in the dust, the dirt of our mess, the poverty of our story, and to do for us what we are incapable of doing on our own. He says, you'll get this when you see me hanging on the cross, bleeding for you. Then you'll understand exactly what I'm doing right now. Unless I wash you, you'll have no part in me. Because Peter says, no, you're never going to wash my feet. No, I won't let it happen. I'm, this is wrong. You're defying social convention, and he is. And then he says, unless I wash you, you can have no part in me. You can't become part of the family until you understand. The only way you get in is to submit yourself in humility to what I can do for you that you cannot do on your own. Louder again for those in the back. The only way you find your way into this family is when you submit in humility to the reality that Jesus can do what you cannot do on your own. You don't get to earn your seat at this table. You only get there when the king gets you your place. This is so beautiful, guys. This is so beautiful. And then Peter misunderstands and they have this conversation about taking a bath and that's just... He's just a knucklehead, okay? Skip that part. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, and he returned to his place, and he said, do you understand what I've done for you? And that's rhetorical, because they didn't. Here's what he tells them. You call me teacher or rabbi and Lord, which is this honorific, that it even points to his divinity. You have begun to recognize I'm not just a good moral teacher. I'm the son of God. I'm the king of all. I am God incarnate. And rightly so, for that is what I am. Now I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You should also, listen to what he says, wash one another's feet. How do we do this? How do we forge a family despite our difference? How do we, from the ashes of corrupted and divided humanity, how do we find the unity that we need? We need a movement of foot washers. We need a, 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 a people committed to this mission of reconciliation. This is not going to be, I'm telling you right now, listen to me carefully. We are not going to win the influence in our culture by preaching at people. We misplayed that years ago. We, the, our moral authority has been lost. We have to earn our right back to where they are going to care what we have to say because we've shown them that we care. Guys, it's time to unleash humbling, loving, selfless service. The Jesus way, this family of God, we have to be unleashed on mission for our king with towels around our waist, binding hearts together in love, serving people with selfless love to the point where unity can finally be imagined. We have to begin to, like Jesus did, like King Jesus did, bring down these walls with humble service. Now, this is a tough thing for us to do. We don't want to be anybody's slave. We don't want to be anybody's servant. But what if we're called to be a slave and a servant to all? Love, 
God with your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, even love your enemy. This is the ultimate ethic of the way of Jesus. It is, it is the expression of our covenant fidelity in response to his covenant faithfulness. It's that, that God has so loved us when we didn't deserve it that we are now to express our love and worship and adoration of Jesus our King in the way that we love everybody else. It goes so far. Jesus goes, he goes so far as to say, if you're coming to church, you got something you know, between your brother, go deal with that thing there because you and I, I've taken care of, but you and him, uh, yeah, that needs some work. Reconcile. Wash feet. Wrap a towel around your waist. Tie on this Jesus-shaped love. He shows them a better way. These 12 men, too proud to serve one another, trying to find their way to a table they don't deserve to be at. And Jesus shows them the way of selfless love. I got two ideas on this. We'll hit them real quick and we're done. This one family thing, how do we do this? We have to shift from competition to cooperation. It's done. It's it's over. Guys, the, the, the ship has sailed. You are not a rival for your brother or sister. Their favor is not taking away from your favor. You have to begin. Listen, I'm telling you right now, if you do this, if you do this, God will work through you in an amazing way. Make it your mission to give everybody else the success around you, to actually amplify their impact, to let them stand on your shoulders and achieve what they can't achieve on their own. Be the person who's constantly pushing everybody else to the front of the line. And I'm, I'm telling you, you will watch as God works through you to do amazing things. I mean, we will recreate this world until it looks like heaven. We will, we will form the very fabric of our culture with a mission of selfless love. I'm watching right now a church community do this. When we started our church, this is how we do this, okay? I didn't want a church just gathered together on a Sunday to worship and hallelujah, praise Jesus, and we all go away and forget what we learned. I said, no, we're gonna be the church with hands in the dirt. We're gonna be the church that's out there. Every time a month has five Sundays, we don't meet. We don't gather at all. We instead go scatter and serve our community in love. And it costs us a lot to do that. We give away a percentage of our budget just to justice cause, just to what's in need. We, from day one, we've done this. And listen, this is the thing, the, the day after our church opened its doors was one of these scatter Sundays. And everybody at all these church boot camps were like, you can't do that. You can't like start a church and the next day not be there because you're serving. Like this is, this is gonna kill your momentum. Here's what I'm finding. We are scattering out more people than we are gathering in. Did you hear what I just said? When we go to serve, my church is the biggest it ever is. You hear me? We go leave, we don't meet, everybody comes. The whole neighborhood comes. People come, bring their friends, bring their coworkers. It's like this missional movement. Everybody's like, what's going on? And we're, we're serving alongside these people. They're wearing our t-shirts and I'm trying to figure out who the heck these people are who are giving up their Sunday to serve with us. And then they're like, hey, this is a church? Churches help people? And they're shocked. And I'm like, yeah, I wish you weren't so shocked. I mean, we, we serve the, the king of selfless love. I kind of feel like we should be known for this. This is what they say. I thought the church was just about money or hating people. I'm like, have you been to church? They're like, yes. But you haven't been to ours. Guys, we got to fix this. Number two, we've got to shift from them to us. Um. This is hard for all of us, but here, here's what I want to say. There's no them. 
There is no them. I don't know who your them is. We all have a them, right? We have some category where it's like there's a line and, and we're here and they're there. This is my tribe. This is my cause. This is my people. There's no, there's no them. What Jesus says is it's all us. We're all us. Some of us are wayward sons and daughters, but they are sons and daughters still. And we have the ministry of reconciliation. We are the ones who have the call to help them find their way home. There's no them. There's just us. We're all us. Lord Jesus, help us understand that your selfless covenant love, your unfailing love is universal. It goes to everybody. It reaches into every crack and crevice of humanity. There's not one area of darkness in all of our universe that, that God is not saying resoundingly and convincingly that that is mine. He claims it all. He wants it all. Every moment of our life, every minute that we're walking on this earth, it all belongs to him. Not just an hour on Sunday or a weekend here or there. This is all for him. That as you live and move and work and breathe and walk in mission, we're to embody this missional orientation to go out into the world with the message and the purpose of reconciliation to bring the kingdom here. This is good stuff. The movement of Jesus is now known more for what it's against than what it's for. And we got to fix this, guys. We got to figure this out. Here's what I want you to do um, I'm going to pray. We've had a great time. You might be here this weekend and you just needed to, to sit for a little while in the, the covenant love of God. You needed to get that from your head to your heart. If that's where you are, please do that. Continue to do that. He wants to, he wants to tell you over and over and over again, you're loved. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're not a slave. Others of you, you need to begin to, 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 to wrestle with what does it look like now that I'm in the family to take that role of reconciliation, to take upon myself this idea that I am going to be the ambassador of my family, that I'm going to be this peacemaker, this voice for the kingdom. And that probably looks a lot more like wrapping a towel around your waist and getting to work. Jesus took a group of proud and divided people, and he forged from their diversity unity, and he did it on his knees as a servant of all. And he invites us to enter that same story. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for, for inviting us home into your family. Jesus, thank you for, for becoming sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. You who knew no sin. Thank you for the work of the cross. Thank you for our redemption. Thank you for the reconciliation that you offer us. Lord Jesus, move our hearts past our silly pride. Let us not be among those who sit at the table with dirty feet because we're locked into this broken idea of our own self-importance, but let us be those who get up from the table, take off our self-importance and put on selfless love. Let us tie a servant's heart around our waist every morning. Let us go into this world on mission for reconciliation. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. 
We hope you enjoyed listening to this Life After Camp episode. Discover all of the year-round adventures at RVR and find out how you can support our ministry at rivervalleyranch.com. Thanks.